0: Welcome to the ABM Conversations Podcast, the number one podcast for B2B marketers wanting to explore timeless account-based marketing strategies to drive revenue, customer engagement, retention, and everything that makes sense to both marketers and sales folks. No more fluff, no more vanity metrics, live from India, made for the world. And now your hosts, Yag and Manish.
1: Hello and welcome everyone to yet another episode of the AVM Conversations podcast. As listeners of our podcast, you must already know that Yag and I don't believe in absolute statements like email is dead or cold calling is dead. But if there's one thing Yag and I can agree on, it's the belief that there's no room for fluff in sales and marketing. And if you have heard of the phrase death to fluff on LinkedIn or elsewhere, you might already have guessed our guest for today's episode of the AVM Conversations podcast. We have Bilal Batravi with us on the show today. Welcome to the show, Bilal.
2: Thank you so much for having me, guys. It's 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 an honor. I, I, I hope people have heard, that would be so cool if people have heard death to fluff somewhere on LinkedIn. That's like, that's when you know you got a cool slogan when other people use it. <laughs>
1: i am absolutely sure a lot of uh, marketers uh, that we know in our circle have heard of i mean that's how we found you right so aside uh, bilal your journey has been a very fascinating one uh, you've been a startup person and uh, you have been a lot of you've been a part of a lot of successful startups like uh, Connectifier. you guys took linkedin head on and then uh, you got acquired by LinkedIn in 2016. You've been also recognized as a top sales influencer by uh, reputed organizations like Sales Loft, LinkedIn, Sweetfish, Crunchbase, and Angelist. I can go on and on. But uh, I feel that these accomplishments are only the highlight reels of the hard work that have shaped you into who you are today. So why don't you give us a little bit of a background about your life before being a sales influencer? And your journey so far, and what led you to do the things that you're doing right now?
2: Oh, that's I appreciate I appreciate listening to the accolades. It's kind of crazy to think about because 12 months ago, I was just another AE in a sea of AES. I was I was a nobody. And then I started posting on LinkedIn, and I started getting all this attention. So it's it's a it is quite an experience and journey to go through that. Um, I'm also the classic job hopper, and I'll I'll take the words right out of my detractor's mouth. I've had several short stints that's, I think people who have been at startups know sometimes that you take risks and reward when you join a startup and and it could be a hit and it could be a miss. And I've definitely had my sh- fair share of misses. Um But yeah, the, the journey has always just, I the first company I joined was a startup that sold to startups. And um it was just a great experience. And I was like, why would I do anything else? This is so much fun. So it, it's all I know, zero to 20 million, you know, is all I know. So I, you know, I tell people like, don't ask me about like, cooking or the stock market i have no idea 0 to 20 million i got you everything else i'm not i'm not the right guy
1: right uh, Bilal, let me open the first round of question by asking you about something that keeps coming in the content that you post on linkedin you keep talking about elevating the thought process around sales in your content right so what triggered you to uh, come up with this thought uh, behind elevating the thought process around sales why what caused you to wish death upon fluff and what were the fluff that you saw that made you think so
2: yeah that's a great question okay so here, it started off with just being annoyed with the content on linkedin you know like you guys mentioned at the beginning of the of the podcast the Posts around whether cold calling is dead or not, and like pre-COVID, everybody would take pictures of their booth at the conference or you know um, reshare their company's press release about a new feature that they just launched. I'm like, nobody cares, right? Like, <laughs> this is really crappy content. Where's the where's the real stuff? And then when when COVID hit, there was this wave of people who are like, be empathetic, be empathetic. And I was like, okay, great, like. I'm sure we can all agree to that. Everyone's nodding their head, but how do you be empathetic in a cold call? Like, like where, where is the empathy? Like, no, everybody wants to talk about what? Very few people are talking about how. How do you do these things? Um, how do you structure a cold outbound sequence, right? How, how do you position pricing? Do you talk about it earlier or later? Like, these things are the difference between e- average sellers and elite sellers. And, and very few people seem to be Getting into the actual how, everybody just wants to talk about what. So I think that's that was kind of the, the calling card for Death to Fluff initially. Now it's kind of morphed into something bigger. Um, but that's how it kind of spawned.
0: Right. So uh, Bill, um, you know, I started my uh, career in sales and uh, eventually moved into uh, marketing. Um, but one thing, you know, if I can remember from those days, you know, way back in 2009, 2010, while I was selling Microsoft Dynamics implementation services, is that uh, most of my deals um, came through conversations on LinkedIn and on uh, Microsoft communities and uh, forums. So uh, despite that, you know, I was always mandated to kind of make Uh, 120 calls, 120 calls per day. Uh, That was what I was actually measured on. And my then boss, uh, yeah. And my boss back then used to, you know, uh, keep repeating this phrase called, yeah, it's a volume game. Uh, And to balance the situation, what I used to do is that uh, I used to uh, spend the last one hour of the day making fake calls to uh, get to that Mm -hmm. number. I I just wanted to know if if this is the scene across the globe. And uh, when you were the VP of sales, uh, how did you measure your team on?
2: Yeah. Well, it is the scene across sales. Like, um, the common practices of sales are are definitely not the best practices. Uh, like when I started off in sales, there were no sales, sales engagement platforms. Now there are, so you could send a thousand crappy emails a day without breaking a sweat and only cost you pennies on the dollar to do so. So yeah, um, people have been faking dials from the dawn of time. Um, Sales has been marked as this hustle game about how much effort you put into it. And it's hard work and you have to grind and you have to push yourself. And that's simply not true. Um, And we have an industry that has accepted, a, a profession that has accepted failure as the status quo. So it's okay to work at an organization, which I have. Like I've been at companies where the call to close rate was 2%. And that was okay. And to me, I was like, 98% of what we're doing is leading to failure. In what other context could there ever be a scenario like that where that's considered acceptable? Um, So when I finally did get my chance to be the VP of sale and run things, I told my team, I will reward you for efficiency, for effectiveness. You show me a better way, teach it to the team, and I'll pay you for that because Your ability to close your deals is incremental value to me. Your ability to teach your peers the same techniques and for them to replicate your success is exponential value to me. Now show me the sales organization that actually studies, dissects, trains, and rewards their sellers for producing better outcomes versus what you experienced, which was where are your 120 dials? I don't care that you're getting business from Microsoft communities, which is a stroke of pure genius. I'd rather you sit there and just grind your teeth.
0: Absolutely, it makes total sense. And uh, you know, another aspect that I've often noticed uh, when it comes to uh, uh, sales or uh, these aspects is that uh, you know uh, we tend to have scheduled uh, meetings every week and. Uh, it's more like, you know, um, these scheduled meetings are there almost set for the next six months or one year and yeah. it doesn't make sense, right? What's the point of pre-scheduling a 30 minute meeting and uh, you start doing that every week and then you waste so much amount of time. So, uh, do you, uh, how did you go about it? Did you have rescheduled or did you go with the flow?
2: We killed that. Yeah. That was the first thing I wanted to kill and that was a very experimental for me, but, um, Nobody was allowed to put a meeting on my team's calendar that had more than four occurrences without written permission. I had to know why. I mean, just the idea that we're going to put a meeting in perpetuity till, you know, all of us are either fired or quit is insane. it makes no sense. As soon as you put a meeting like that, it's automatically disrespected because clearly you don't view that time as as valuable or as productive if you're scheduling out to infinity and beyond. We used to do a simple method. We'd say uh, a month will not pass without a one-on-one. Three days will not pass without a call coaching or call review session. Um, we had a week will not pass without a team huddle occurring. Now, when or where was, was totally by the flow of things. So um, we, we had pods. It was very easy for a pod to meet. And it would be something like a seller would say, Oh, you know what? It's actually been three days since our last call review. Okay, great. So we're going to have to find the time to do that today. We'd put the time on. And when we did that, everybody respected that time. Everybody appreciated and valued that time because they knew that meeting was important. It was a meeting that they wanted to attend because they wanted to respect the rules and do that. Um, So I think that's like a telltale sign of a world class team is valuing the time and energy of the
1: employees in that team. Based on what you just said, I have two questions for you, Bilal. Number one is, uh, what's one thing that you wish salespeople across the world should stop doing, according to you?
2: Um, The number one mistake that sellers are doing across the world, which is really hard, and and six sales trainings failed to teach me this, Um, I wish I had known it sooner, was You naturally put yourself center stage, right? We are naturally egocentric and self-centered. I'm the center of my universe. You're the center of yours. Great selling is putting your prospect or buyer in the center of the universe. And that's an unnatural act. It requires brain power and concentration to remove yourself as the hero and make them the hero. And then you are supposed to play like Merlin who gives the hero the magic sword to slay the dragon. That is a very difficult mental shift to make. Uh, and you have to, you have to concentrate because you're going against the natural order of your brain. But if you do, you will reap the rewards.
1: I, I love that answer. That's a great uh, analogy as well. Now, you've talked about the fluff. We've talked about uh, bad practices, like unnecessary meetings and all that. And you also keep talking about how you can't teach selling or understanding uh, the buyer uh, when it comes to the sales profession, right? Majority of sales and marketing training are either about product technology or some random role play in the name of objects and handling. But if not for training or courses, how do you think can new and ambitious salespeople develop their expertise in sales? Can you perhaps give our listeners three to five pointers on how they can become a kick-ass sales professional without the unnecessary hassles?
2: Yeah, that's, I mean, that's a fantastic question. And, and part of this, I mean, you alluded to it with the product training. The reality is we are cursed with knowledge as sellers and marketers, and we fail to understand or our, our minds naturally contextualize. We do not decontextualize. It's very hard for our brains to decontextualize. So, you know, when you're talking to a prospect, They have no context to who you are, what you do, what you're about, or any of that stuff. You have all of that stuck in your brain. So it's very hard to drop down to their level when you're on another level. So understanding the buyer's journey is is one of the most critical things sales and marketers can do. And what's interesting is the buyer's journey is universal. Again, six sales trainings never taught me this, but it's unaware, aware, consideration, evaluation, decision. Those are the five stages we go through, whether it's a stick of gum, a house, a piece of software. Those are the stages we go through. And knowing where your prospect or buyer is determines how you're going to message them effectively. So prospects are people who are in unaware, aware consideration. You don't sell to those people. They're prospects. They've shown no intent to buy. They're as good as a lead in your CRM. Nothing more. That's not a buyer. So you don't sell to non-buyers. People become buyers when they show intent. Intent is things like, they've thought about a budget, they've aligned goals or outcomes, desired outcomes from the product or project that they're working on. They have a critical event that's driving them and that critical event is not in your control. It's something like our contract expires, our fiscal year ends, a pandemic just changed our business, you know, overnight. Those are critical events that drive business decisions. And when you have that, and they're willing to you know, evaluate or make a decision on your product, then you have a buyer. That's when you sell. And so most most sellers are pitching, you know, for a meeting, a 30-minute meeting on the first outreach. You know, that person doesn't even know you exist before you sent that email. And your first call to action is to try to get a time on their calendar. What are you doing, right? Like you're violating, no, you would never want that done to you. Um, but we we seem to think that's going to work with our with our prospects and it doesn't. So I think that's one big thing is the buyer's journey. Um, a second thing would be understanding how to talk. You have to show your buyer that you are in their circle. You you are the same tribe and same language as them. Because you know if if an engineer jumped on this podcast right now and started trying to tell us how to do sales and marketing, we'd be like, you know, get out of here. You don't know what you're talking about right? You've got to, you have got to live it to know it. I like to know people are in the same tribe as me before I start listening to them. And if you sell to CFOs, for example, and you don't know the top pains of CFOs and what they talk about between each other, and the peer-to-peer questions that they ask each other, good luck trying to get their attention. But if you can show them that you know as peers what they discuss and what they care about, you instantly change the social paradigm from a buyer-seller a to like a consultant or an advisor, something that's much better, and you will get their attention. So I think those are, those are two things I'd
1: say. That's amazing. I, I love uh, the way this conversation is uh, going towards. But uh, before we ask you our next question, uh, I want to go into a two minute break and thank our sponsors, which is Just.is, since we are in the topic of B2B sales and marketing. I want to give a shout out to Jestos IS, who is our sponsor of the ABM Conversation Podcast. And as many of you might already know, Jest is a marketing content stream that sits on your Google Chrome browser as a new tab extension. It's a website where you can either discover or submit high-quality articles, podcasts, infographics, videos, and ebooks. Its AI-powered algorithm allows you to handpick your personalized content feed that is specific to your taste.
0: Right. And uh, as marketers, um, you know, Manish and uh, I use Zest quite a lot. And, um, you know, based on your feedback, we also understand that you do as well to uh, promote your content to like-minded marketing communities. So if you want to um, uh, give us uh, some support to what we do on the ABM Conversations podcast, and if you also want to um, boost your content to an elite community of marketers, uh, we have some good news for you. Just go ahead and sign up at zest.is slash content boost and get a $75 boost on your first um, uh, first ever ad or first ever content promotion that you're going to do. Just let them know that you're coming from the ABM Conversations podcast so uh bilal coming back to uh, our conversation you know we as marketers you know we tend to talk about things like abm that is account based marketing where the idea is to uh, build engagement with a targeted set of accounts pretty much like uh, what was originally the account management uh, from a sales perspective right the core point there being you uh, build velocity into a targeted account then uh, wherein you look at them moving from consuming information to expressing interest in talking to uh, a sales rep or probably uh, trying, wanting to try a demo of your product or maybe signing up for, uh, you know, a custom demo and conversation, so on and so forth. So that's where the flow is. And uh, interestingly, I've often seen you uh, specifically uh, write in detail about uh, the status quo or uh, no decision from the prospect being the number one deal killer. Uh, I would love to hear a little more about that from you, you know, assuming that uh, everything was done right through the nurture period in marketing. uh, Why does this non-decision aspect continue? Uh, Maybe give us the seller's perspective, maybe a story of how you turn such a situation into closure.
2: Yeah. You know, so let's even back it up for a second. Maybe you guys can, can share this with me, you know, you can go out there as a marketer, as a seller, as anybody who's part of the go-to-market team and pick any account you want in the world. That doesn't mean they're going to buy from you just because you picked them. What you're typically looking for and what sellers often do, and I'm sure marketers do too, is we look at people who are product fit, right? So, oh, this company could benefit from our product. We we sell stuff like I'll take Connectifier, for example. You know, Connectifier, we sell to technical recruiters. So, we said, okay, what are the companies that have the largest technical recruiting teams? Let's go try to sell them because we can make the most money from them and they have the most amount of users that can benefit from our, from our product. There's a huge flaw in that. There's a huge flaw in that because just because they have a lot of technical recruiters doesn't mean that they are early or mid-stage adopters of technology, that they see a need to change, that the people in charge have the political power to make that change occur. There's so many other factors that go in to a sale that again are not you know what you would find in a CRM set of stages or a set of CRM notes but those things critically matter so it's it's not enough to simply say that company should be using our product let's go try to sell them or market to them but will they and I, the the way to combat no decision is to pitch early and upfront a fork in the road concept that says you're either in or you're out Some sort of provocation that makes your prospect decide, yes, I agree with your statement or your beliefs or no, I do not. Because if you don't, there's nothing that you're going to be able to show that company to convince them to buy. And you just saved yourself an entire marketing and sales cycle. And if they do, you've now gotten like a mini contract buy-in that's going to accelerate and sustain the deal to the end, to a good conclusion. And those sort of moments are like what we did this at Connectifier. We used to say, when was the last time you bought a piece of technology outside of LinkedIn recruiter for your recruiting team? And there were companies that told us we haven't. And we're like, then you're not a fit. And there are companies that are like, we've been experimenting with this and that. Just last year, we tried out this. It was a complete failure and be like, then we've got something cool to show you. Just the fact that they had the propensity to change Were they the type that were looking for new solutions or were they okay with the status quo? That was how we determined if they were actually worth our time to sell to. So I think this is a a big mistake that we make where we think about product fit as the way to lead our sales and marketing efforts instead of are they actually the type that have the propensity and willingness to change and look at something new from the status quo that they're on today?
1: Awesome. I, I feel like we are only scratching the surface of the problems that uh, sales as a domain is facing through. But uh, we'll try to address whatever we can in the uh, limited time we have in the podcast. And my next question is based on this uh, data that I have from Exactly, which is a sales uh, performance management platform. It's spelled X A C T L Y. Now, I have in front of me this interesting research report from Exactly. And one of the stats in that report says that 79% of SaaS sales reps miss their quota. But interestingly enough, the company, the respective company doesn't miss hitting their revenue quota. And my question to you, Belal, is have you noticed a similar pattern in the sales team that you have worked with? And if so, what do you think is actually going on?
2: Yeah, unfortunately, I have. And I've I've been on the side of missing it and the side of hitting it and everything in between. So I've, I've tasted all the flavors that there are to taste in that scenario. You know, what's, what's really upsetting is that that statistic again is as a hallmark statistic of failure, right? That's, that's a process failure because that report that you're referring to also states that it is independent of industry and it is independent of deal type. So that's saying, even if you're a SaaS startup that sells healthcare tech, enterprise or you're a SaaS startup that sells to quick serve restaurants SMB, the failure rate stays consistent across industry and deal size, which is extremely disturbing because then that means it's an inherent issue with the SaaS business, right? The expectations are are not correct. Um, But companies are still hitting their numbers through negative churn, through upsell and cross sell, through different means, right? Channel sales, indirect sales. The company has different revenue streams, but sellers are reliant on net new business and their quota. So that that's a major, major process failure. Um, and it, it it's worth a good hard look as to why that's happening. Now, I, I have my guesses. I don't know if you want to hear them. I have some guesses as to why, but clearly something has gone wrong in the SaaS model because sellers are getting churned out at an alarming rate.
1: No, I actually think we should go into the details of why do you think uh, uh, why do you think that's happening? Because my follow up question was going to be, uh, what do you think? Uh, what do you think it takes to fix that problem? Please, if we go onto any
2: sales floor today, more often than not, we're going to see a giant com- uh, TV screen or computer screen or something like that, and it's going to have a dashboard on it from the CRM and it's going to have a bunch of, you know, measures of things that probably aren't very useful to how the deals are actually tracking. It's going to stack rank all the people in that dashboard by their activity and by their revenue number, which are all inputs and outputs and things that measure the destination and not the journey because there's so much that goes into a sales cycle. And it's really really frustrating and it goes against basic psychology on how to reward. So here's a classic example. Imagine a seller learns a a piece of competitive intelligence and goes and shares it with the entire team. And by doing so enables the team to be better equipped to win deals against that competitor. How does that show up on that dashboard? It doesn't, but that's exponential value for the company, right? But that seller will not be rewarded for that they'll be solely judged on their ability to hit quota that quarter that week that month that year whatever it is all right so we're, we're measuring people wrong and worst of all we're resetting the scoreboard constantly and and i think todd caponi for sharing this with me the author of the transparency Cell. when i spoke to him he told me about a study that they did where they had two groups of people build structures out of blocks And every time you built the structure, you'd get paid a certain dollar amount, some nominal amount, $15, $10, and they'd have them keep going. The difference between the two groups was with one group, they would take what they built, destroy it, and give them the blocks back again. The second group, they would take what they built, put it on a shelf, and then give them a new set of blocks. Every single time they did this study, they found the group where they preserved their work, went further, and did more at a faster pace Than the ones that did not we like to see our accomplishments we like to see our work preserved we like to see growth we're naturally oriented that way how does resetting the scoreboard every single week month quarter year make sense right again it, it just we're not measuring people the right way we're just looking at outputs we're looking at the destination not the journey and I would wager that those businesses, those SaaS companies that are hitting their revenue targets, but are completely failing in preserving their their workforce and their employee engagement are the same ones that we hear about, like the WeWorks of the world that reach that level, but still can't be cash positive.
0: Right. Totally kind of uh, makes a lot of sense, right? So you invest on the right kind of people and make sure that uh, you uh, keep them with you. Fantastic. So uh, moving a little further, uh, uh, Bilal, now now that we have come close to the 30 minute mark, uh, let's go into the rapid fire questions. Are you ready for it?
2: Oh yeah, okay, here we go. You guys ask good questions. I'm worried.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Right, so we're gonna ask, um, you know, simple four or five questions. You can answer it crisply or you can expand it based on how you feel about it. There is no uh, hard and fast rules to that. So uh, here's my first question. I think this is gonna be easy. What was the one thing or what is the one thing that you've learned about yourself during this pandemic?
2: Oh, I do much better in isolation than I thought I did. I I really do enjoy. Sometimes I, it's nice to just take a break and be kind of cut off and like, not have people like I, I used to think it was very nice to be in the office and have that environment, but now I'm realizing it can be really nice, especially with the amount of time I've been able to spend with my family. Um, I, I do kind of like uh, a dose of isolation every now and then. It does does the body good.
0: Right right totally get it in fact uh, i have a separate space for myself in the home you know i'm a bit of introvert myself so i can totally understand
2: nice
0: and uh, going to the uh, second question what are the top 3 qualities that you would look for uh, when you're hiring a sales rep
2: ooh that's really good you know hiring sales reps is this enigma nobody's really cracked it and i i will put myself in that category too i've not cracked it i've i've made the wrong calls and i've made the right calls and everything in between what what i've noticed is this you know, everybody talks about coachability. It's hard to really test for because you can game that, but to some extent, you want that in a seller. You want coachability because, again, um, the failure mounts. It's it's something that it, you know. Sales is a trade skill, not a not a not a degree that you get, and so you have to learn it from from other master sellers, just like you would carpentry, right? You don't read a book about carpentry; you go study under master carpenter, and then you you can then. Perfect the craft. Sales is the same way. So you want that coachability. Um, We used to test for something at Connectifier called um, constrained creativity. Constrained creativity is like, I'll I'll give you a set of parameters, but then I want to see how creative you can be inside a set of rules, like in in a game or something like that. And we found that people that scored high or did well in constrained creativity were actually exceptional sellers because they were able to do the problem solving and critical thinking required to get deals done when the buyer wasn't following the typical pattern that you expect. So that's a second um, one. And I think a third one would be, I, it's, it's great to work with sellers that on their own have a desire to learn and grow. Like it's weird because at some places it's taboo as a seller to want to get promoted or change jobs or not be in sales for the rest of your life. It's happened to me. So I can at least speak on my own experience, but that's a a great quality to have because the most impactful things I've learned in my sales career have not come from sales books. have not come from, um, you know, Selling deals directly. It comes from outside experiences that then mold me and shape me to be a better empathetic person. So I think people that have that desire to learn and grow do seem to do really well in sales environments that foster that.
0: Right. And I especially love the third point that you mentioned, because, you know, at the end of the day, it's all about you cannot teach that part, you know, how you handle a situation when you come across one. And that's spontaneity. And especially, you know, I, I love this point because uh, uh, sellers are more often than not always looking at their quota and looking at how they are going to sell. And we forget the cognitive behavioral aspect of the buyer, which is often yeah. missed. Yeah, Yep. Yeah,
2: right.
0: Sure. Right. And here comes the... Um, Third question, and I think this is going to be uh, interesting. What is uh, what is that one emotion that you're always looking to elicit uh, when you're on a sales call to, from a prospect?
2: Oh, good one. The the main emotion that I'm looking to elicit is a is actually like a bit of anxiety. Um, I I want them because I, I sell against the status quo. That's how I've been a, a great seller. I don't sell against my competition. I don't sell my product. I sell against the status quo because that's where deals die. That's where, where it ends. And if I can not get them to buy in that they need to change or they should consider changing their ways, then nothing I'm going to show them is going to be compelling, right? I want that croc brain, limbic brain firing off in that fight or flight or freeze um, motion going in their brain and seeing that they're... They, they see a problem and they're willing to make a change about it. Otherwise, I don't stand a chance because that that's true sales, right? I need a buyer. I don't need a prospect. And that's the difference between a, a prospect and a buyer is that intent, that intent to change. So anxiety is a great thing. Like I I talk about it like this. I don't have to explain to people why being the last one out is bad, right? We, we know that. All of us know that regardless of your your race, your ethnicity, your culture, your gender, we already are socially trained to understand that being the last one out is bad. So why not use that, right? Why not tell people, look, you can keep doing what you're doing, but here's the cost of it. And you might find yourself being the last one out. Are you okay with that? And there's a set of people who will be like, yeah, I am. They're like, great. They were a laggard, late-stage adopter of technology. Good luck to them. There's going to be another portion that be like, no, that's not acceptable to me. I can't be the last one out. They're like, well then you're going to want to see this. You're going to want to see what I have.
0: Right. Is it is this the marketing equivalent of what we call as uh, FOMO, the fear of missing out?
2: It is. It is. And and it goes back to prospect theory, which they won the uh, Nobel Prize in economics for back, uh, I don't know how many years ago now. But yeah, that's, that, that's the exact equivalent. And most of us, We talk about how we help people save time and money Um, in the marketing teardowns that I do. If you guys have seen those on LinkedIn, I've done a couple with like I did service now and I did a, a company called level set their marketing websites. All of their marketing was how they help, how they save their ROI. I'm like, that's not compelling. That's, that's the potential of gain, not the fear of loss. Tell me what I stand to lose. If I keep doing it the wrong way, let me know that I'm at risk that there's, you know, it's not going to be safe to keep doing it this way and you're going to get my attention really fast cuz you know i i like saving time i hate wasting it it's cool to save money i mean i feel good when i save money but i hate wasting my money like i can't tolerate that so that's the emotions you want to you want to seize
0: Love it. Love it. Um, here's a interesting and probably a binary question. Um, so what would be your pick? Um, you know, is it all about how much you sell or is it about how you sell?
2: It's always about how you sell. I mean, right. it can't be about how much you sell. Because again, that's, that's saying like the ends justify the means and that's not true. You got to look yourself in the mirror every morning and how you sell defines that. And I, as somebody who's like, you know, I'm I'm a man of faith. I have a moral compass that guides my decisions. I will always put that first people before profit. I will always do that. I will always do that because I know in the long run, that is going to guarantee me success versus making short term poor decisions that might get me a quick win, but I'm not going to be happy with who I am. In the long run, and that you know what that goes back to. By the way, it's a fantastic question because let me let me put it like this as well. Think of it like this: we've all had this experience before, where we felt somebody looking at us, and then we turned and looked across the room and caught a pair of eyes on us. You know, you got you guys know what I'm talking about. You ever had that? happen? Right,
0: absolutely, absolutely. We, uh, in fact, it happens to me uh, just like I'm driving a car, and exact at moment when I'm crossing hundred, I look at the screen.
2: Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And how, how, how does that happen? Right? Like, how do you know to look that, or, or how did you know that somebody was looking at you and then you turned around and you catch a pair of eyes? Like we, we, as human beings, there's an unconscious part to us, the subconscious part that comes off. It's the same thing that happens when um, certain chemicals in our body get elevated when we're lying or when we're stressed. It's the same thing that happens when, I mean, like, try, try to go do a cold call when you feel depressed. Good luck.
0: Like the last (laughs) thing on earth
2: you want to do when you feel like crap is go make a cold call and 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 it's your results are going to suck because you feel bad, right? That's not how you pick yourself up. So these things matter because to be an elite seller, the unconscious messaging that you give off, that you're confident in what you sell, that you're, that you have integrity, that you have, um, you know, that you're, you're, you're not just looking to only serve your best interests. You're not going to be self-centered. These things matter. And, you know, again, I don't, you know, where, where do they happen exactly? At what minute mark of the call does that happen? I'm not sure. But I know for a fact that those things impact the likelihood of a deal to close.
0: Right. Brilliant. So here's my uh, final question. And I think this is a slightly longer question. Um, let's say a customer uh, comes to you and uh, compares a product, your product to a competition that is expensive and also offers better features. So what would be your, uh, you know, tactic to convert that into a positive conversation?
2: Yeah, you know, this is, there's, I, it's interesting because I thought about how many ways does a marketer or seller actually have to delight a potential buyer and when you start thinking about that, there's very few opportunities that you're going to get to absolutely delight your buyer. There's a couple areas, though, that are always there pricing competition are two of the top ones that always come up. And wouldn't it be great if you could tell your buyer. Information about your competitive landscape that they could never find on their own searching G2 or Trust Radius or whatever, you know, whatever review site they go to to try to figure it out. That's a a very special moment to flex your subject matter expertise and to show that you are a, a trustworthy party in this business exchange, right? Business in good faith. So if I had a first off, if I had a buyer bring up a, com- a competitor before I could, I'd consider that a failure. I want to bring up competition. I want to lead that conversation. I don't want to wait for it to happen because they're one Google search away anyways from finding them. So let me be the first to bring it up. And I want to be very clear about what I think my competition does extremely well. And then I want to be really clear about why I think we do one or two things different and why that matters. And I'm going to ask them, do you think that matters too? I'm going to put it back on them to to tell me if they think they care about it. So if my competition is more expensive and has better features, I'm going to say that. I beg, they are a better product when it comes to this set of features. You can actually see it right on their website. And I can tell you that for a fact. And that's why they're able to charge more than us. They're an expensive product for that reason. People find success when they use that product because of X, Y, and Z. The reason why not everybody in the market is using them is because of one, two, and three. And we believe that one, two, and three really matter. That's why we built our product this way. It's not for everyone, and we already know that. Let me pause and let me see. What are your thoughts? Do you think one, two, and three matter? Or are you more on the side of X, Y, and Z? And I make them choose. And that way I know, again, do I have a real buyer or do I just have a prospect? Right? Because I don't want to I don't want to be in some competitive bake-off and then find out that my competition had the advantage the whole time. They were the first in and they set the rules for the game. That's a waste of time.
0: Right. In fact, uh, you know, I remember one of these examples back in the day when you used to be um, selling data to marketers and one of your competitor uh, uh, was um, costlier and also had a um, broader set of features. Uh, can you just uh, tell us a little bit about that story? I think that was really good one and our listeners would love it
2: yeah so uh, I, w- I was with a company, a Martech company that sold firmographic data. One of our competitors had way more data. I was actually a former happy customer of that competitor. I'd used them previously and I thought they were wonderful. Um, so I used to bring that up. I used to tell people right at the beginning of the call just so you know my background I've you know I've been with this company for this many years, but I've actually used our competitors and been happy customers of them before so I'm very familiar with those tools. Let me know if you'd like to discuss and most people will be like, oh wow. The sales guy just listed the name of the competitors right in the first three minutes of the call. And so they would ask me and I would tell them that product could do things that my product simply cannot. And the difference is you will pay for it. And if you can take advantage of all the extra data that they provide, you will find value in paying the premium that they charge deservedly for the data that they have. But most people I speak to will never even touch half even a quarter of the data that they provide they're looking for a simpler easier use case so if you are looking for something very in-depth I recommend them if you're not I recommend taking a look at what we do and people found that very honest right and again there was an unconscious going back to what we talked about on the previous question I was being completely sincere there was no lying I wasn't trying to um, bash a competitor I was just being very frank about why I was a happy former customer of theirs, but I don't think that they're the solution for everyone in the market. And people loved it. It delighted them. And I was doing it without them asking. I was just opening the conversation up, which was so unexpected. And I immediately changed the social paradigm from buyer and seller, which is one of um, conflict because of competing interests to a social paradigm of, you know, uh, reviewer, right? Somebody seeking a review and trying to understand the marketplace. And I was able to show my subject matter expertise. So I think, you know, it's critical. It's critical to understand the competitive landscape, know where your competitors are better than you and be clear and upfront about that and just know what your unique value prop is um, that, that makes people want to buy your product.
1: Yeah, and I think that's also a very mature way of uh, handling sales instead of the typical sales playbook where, uh, you know, sales team are insecure in, uh, you know, dissing the competition and trying to prove themselves better. What you talked all- earlier about uh, people discovering your competition before you being a failure also reminds me of this golden rule in marketing that says it's better to be First, then to be better in marketing and sales. So uh, definitely a point to think about. Uh, having said that, Bilal, it's really great to talk to you after having followed you, your content on LinkedIn for so long. And before we close the show, do you have any parting message for aspiring sales professionals who might be listening to you right now?
2: Oh, well, it's it's been my honor, guys. I appreciate you having me. Uh, <laughs> words for aspiring sellers. Oh, that's a tough one um i'll i'll say i'll say this um you know be more than your quota and it's hard and i get it because you're constantly reminded of your quota and truly to many companies you will not be anything more than a quota number to them but that's okay it's okay to understand the game that you're in and the rules and how it's played but hold yourself to a higher standard than just being the quota because guaranteed you could do everything right in sales and still get uh, a lost deal and you could botch your way through it and still get a win. There's so much outside of your control. So the further you can detach from the outcome, the better. And that's why I say be more than your quota because the quota is just the outcome, but you are much more than whatever that is.
1: Awesome, great answer. And uh, we know that you hang out on LinkedIn a lot. That's where we hang out too. Um, so is that the best channel for people to reach out to you, or do you have other internet addresses, uh, social media handles for people who want to follow your work?
2: Oh, great question. Uh, LinkedIn's a great spot. Also, the Death to Fluff community on Bravado. I think we're over nine hundred sellers in that community now. Um, a lot of like-minded individuals in there. You'll again, you'll find a lot of same tribe, same language of the sellers that have joined there. So those are the two best spots, um, and you'll you'll find a lot of a lot of good. People to network with in the Death of Fluff community on Bravado. That's just deathtofluff.bravado.co.
1: Awesome, Bilal. Uh, once again, thank you so much for taking out the time to be on our show. And to the listeners of our podcast, uh, we will see you in the next episode. And until next time, this is bye from me, Manish.
0: And this is bye
1: from me, Yag. Take care. Thanks for listening to the ABM
0: Conversations Podcast. Make sure you subscribe and share your comments with us. We're constantly looking for your feedback, thoughts, and suggestions to make the show more relevant
1: to you.